You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, where we offer courses, events, and more for adults age 50 and better. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member Susan Supak, as she sits down for another conversation with one of the people who makes our program so special. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. Bert Hayslip, Jr. Dr. Hayslip is a Regents Professor Emeritus and an adjunct professor at UNT's Department of Psychology. His area of interest is focused predominantly on research involving cognitive function, primarily the cognitive changes that occur later in life, in grief and bereavement, in grandparenting and grandparents raising grandchildren, and in mental health and aging. Impressively, Dr. Hayslip is the 2016 recipient of the Gerontological Society of America's Distinguished Career Contribution to Gerontology Award. He is a fellow of GSA's Educational Unit, the Association of Gerontology in Higher Education, and the American Psychological Association. He is also the former editor of the International Journal of Aging and Human Development and is an associate editor of Experimental Aging Research and Developmental Psychology. Dr. Hayslip has been generous in sharing his knowledge and expertise most recently with us here at OLLI in his class titled Memory and Aging, How to Remember Not to Forget. Welcome, Dr. Hayslip. Thank you. It's good to have you here. I'm very excited to hear what you have to say. I think your information has a lot of relevance to many of us. I have no doubt we could have very interesting and full podcast episodes on each of your areas of expertise. They are all very relevant and important to a majority of people, particularly in the age range of those of us who are members of OLLI. So I guess we could begin by exploring your background a bit and what led you to become interested in the biological and cognitive changes that occur as we age. Well, actually, it was rooted in my experience working for my father. He had a cleaning business, and we went into a nursing home. We cleaned the carpet and the tile and that sort of thing, and I just felt for the people who were in the nursing home, and I decided that that's what I wanted to do, was work with older adults. It's pretty simple. Can you give us a simple layman's explanation about how memory works and perhaps clarify the distinctions we might find in disease processes like Alzheimer's and Mm -hmm. other stroke, depression, anything else that's affecting the memory? Well, I think it's importantly, as you noted, very key to understand that normal memory is different from pathological aging. Normally, people experience a certain degree of decline in what we call a short-term memory, whereas in Alzheimer's disease and strokes and Parkinson's and the other forms of dementia, the deficits are generally more pervasive, and there's a real biological reason for them. In many cases, the pattern of decline is different. The more impaired you are and the more pervasive your pathology 
the less likely you are to be able to compensate for any declines that you're experiencing. Whereas in normal aging, compensation is quite possible. And that's what I teach when I talk about memory and aging. I've talked to people about what memory is, and in the simplest way of thinking about it is information, whether it be a phone number, someone's name, directions, you name it, it has to get in, and that we refer to as learning, and it has to get out. And that's really what memory is about, okay? But it's really an ongoing process of assigning meaning to information, storing it, and retrieving it when you need it. And we've all had that experience of something being on the tip of our tongue and not being able to recall it, letting it go and discovering later that, boing, it's appeared. Uh, That doesn't happen in Alzheimer's disease. It doesn't happen when people have profound strokes. It doesn't happen in the other forms of dementia. Pretty much once you lose those connections, they're lost pretty much forever. So I'm sure we all have humorous examples of what we call a senior moment. Mm -hmm. And we tend to have more and more of them as we get older. Why is that? And what is it? How would you define a senior moment? I try not to buy into that sort of thing. It's a way of being critical about getting older. And it's usually at the older person's expense. So it's a negative type of perception. It comes under the rubric of what we call elder speak. Talking down to people, infantilizing them, patronizing them. Or don't we look good today, honey? And what can I do for you? And those sorts of things. They really are insult. Sure. And they really assume that you're declining, your best years are behind you, you're not capable, as capable as you were at one time, your future is bleak, you're rigid, all the stereotypes that we associate with getting older, one of which is, as you get older, you're more likely to have senior moments, okay? I always ask my class, I teach at UNT, I said, how many of you got a perfect score on the test? Of course, no one ever does. I've had one student that had one, one time. And I said, well, that must mean you forgot something, didn't it, right? And they'll all agree with me. And I said, well, that must mean you have Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> and they all laugh about that. Right. Okay. Point being that everyone experiences memory loss from time to time. Everybody. There's not a single exception to that. I know people whose memories are virtually photographic. They're the rare exceptions. But most of us, the average person, and I would include myself, I have memory loss, slips of this or that. The issue is one of, am I aware of it? Is there something I can do about it? And does it concern me? I am aware of it. It does not concern me because I know the information I need is eventually going to come back. And if I want to improve my skills, I have ways of doing that. Regardless of age. Exactly. That's wonderful news. And this is what I encourage students to do. When I talk about memory and aging, I say almost every single thing we've discussed here applies to each and every one of you. Regardless of age. Regardless of how old you are. So everyone is capable of losing things, misplacing things, forgetting names, forgetting addresses, that sort of thing. I think part of the culprit, if you will, is technology. Why is that? Well, if I don't want to make the effort or I have no confidence in my ability to remember the phone number you gave me, what am I going to do with it? Ah, put it in your phone. phone. 
that relieves me of the burden or the effort that's going to be required for me to memorize that. I memorize my license plates in that way, creating a mnemonic which is unique to me, which is meaningful, and with very little effort, I can recall my license plate number. When you do something like that, when you memorize your license plate number instead of putting it in your phone, do you actually improve your memory by doing that? I think I do. Yeah, see, I've acquired something using a skill that I didn't have before, theoretically didn't have before. And that's what I teach people. You can acquire these skills. This is not all biology. This isn't genetics. You have the capacity to improve. It's so interesting to hear you say this because going back to your comments about elder speak, I think we do that to ourselves more than anyone. And we don't have to be that old before we start doing it. Oh, my memory. Oh, I'm having my senior moments. Here Mm -hmm. I go. Right. And that's very interesting. Not only do we put that negative spin on it, but yet we disregard our ability to continue to approve our abilities in memorizing things. And I have heard people say things like those who are as young as 30. That's crazy. (laughs) It is crazy. But, you know, if you internalize these things pretty early, and there is some work that suggests that people, by virtue of their exposure, the nature of their exposure, the extent of their exposure to people who are older when they are young, they become the victims of the very stereotypes they have foisted on these other people by virtue of the way in which they interact with them. So you really become your own worst enemy. Absolutely. So by the time you reach your 30s and 40s and 50s, you've already bought into You do what you expect. Yeah. Come to believe you can do by virtue of your own attitudes and lack of information and biases and to an extent even fears about growing older. Which many of us have. That's correct. And yet that we have these self-fulfilling prophecies, so to speak. That's exactly that it. feed our fears, feed what we were afraid right. of, and right. there we go. You know, another thing you mentioned, too, about the normal types of forgetting and losing things. I remember taking a family member into a neurologist, and his comment was, don't be concerned if you lose your car keys. The time you have to be concerned is when you find your car keys and you don't remember what you're supposed to do with them. That is correct. Right. It's an extreme case, but yes, it's very true. That's not to say that people don't have more difficulty learning and recalling information as they get older. And why is that? There are lots of reasons. I mean, some of it is rooted in the biology of aging. Neural transmission speed slows down. Brain cell changes change. The difference between normal aging and Alzheimer's, for example, is a matter of degree. The changes that we see in brain function in Alzheimer's are approximated by changes that people who are older but don't have visible signs of Alzheimer's experience. So it's a matter of degree. As I said, once you lose this ability to give meaning to information and store it and retrieve it, and you lose not just your confidence, but your opportunity to acquire new skills, you're headed down the road, if you will, for decline. I went to a conference at uh, one point where they were talking about brain reserve. And I'm curious, given the changes with age and even a disease process like Alzheimer's, 
what is brain reserve and how does it help you to compensate for some difficulties you might have in that disease process? Well, the more information you store, the more you stimulate yourself, the more new associations you create. When you learn new things, Mm -hmm. the greater the reserve you accumulate. So on the assumption that you do lose some brain function as you get older, the evidence is pretty reliable that you do. You have more left over to rely on. That's why getting started early and maintaining a positive view of your skills not losing confidence, not internalizing these things that say, well, you know, I'm old. What would I expect? That's what happens. That's what happens. And it isn't what happens. No, it is not. People age in unique ways. And we all age differently, I would imagine. I mean, is this uniform or does it vary depending on... No, it varies. It varies in terms of the extent of loss, people's awareness of it, uh, their access to new skills, their willingness to use new skills opportunities for new learning, the anxiety they may feel about growing older, about losing their skills. There are lots of things that contribute to that. What about things like emotions, stress, lack of sleep? Do they play a role in that? Well, there is some work. Interesting you would mention that. I was listening to NPR a couple days ago, and they were interviewing a professor at TCU about hormones and women and those sorts of things. And she happened to mention a study she'd seen where they found a relationship between cortisol overload and hippocampal decline. Now, cortisol is a stress hormone that's secreted by your adrenal glands when you're under stress. And if this is consistent, cumulative, severe enough, you emit more cortisol than you really need, it becomes maladaptive. A mild amount is good, Because it alerts you, it heightens your sensitivity, uh, sort of the fight or flight sort of thing. Too much overwhelms you. And they found that the higher these cortisol levels were as a function of constant stress, the more damage had been done to the hippocampus, which is the brain center for memory. I'm wondering if this damage is reversible. The brain has quite a manner of healing itself in some respects. Brain cells, once they die they die. Now, you can generate new interconnections Mm -hmm. between existing cells, and that's what happens whenever you learn something. You're creating a new interconnection. So the more numerous and complex those connections are, the more likely you are to be more resilient with regard to whatever losses you're going to be experiencing. Well, this connection between cortisol and memory ties in with the things that I often hear about the beneficial effects of exercise Mm -hmm. and meditation, Mm -hmm. any of those things that help us to be healthy and reduce our stress or also give our bodies more ability to stay healthy and function as they're supposed to. It all makes sense. Yeah. I mean, what works for you as an older adult or a soon-to-be older adult also works for you to an extent with regard to Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Exercise helps. Social support, stimulation, lowering your anxiety, providing you with the opportunity to learn new things. We published a study, it was a while ago now, about 2010, where we demonstrated that with Alzheimer's patients, we could nevertheless improve their cognitive functioning having created for them what we call a mental aerobics class. 
very basic, you know, we'll gather together and we'll talk about, give me six vegetables or who can name all the first names you can think of that begin with a C. Real basic stuff like that. And we were able to demonstrate that they improved in their functioning. They were less reliant on medications. They were more functional. Their mood improved. Now, this is a pilot study, but there's a fair amount of work out there to suggest that even for people with mild to, at best, moderate dementia, there's still the capacity to improve. That's great news. You may not improve to the point where you were before. Right. And you... Even if you're older and you're, you're not suffering from Alzheimer's disease, that doesn't mean that you're going to get to a point where you were when you were younger. Realistically, your brain does change. Speed of processing changes. The neuroanatomy changes. And those are just realities for people, just like your body changes. Your cardiovascular system, your respiratory system, your digestive system, your immune system, all those things change. Now, you can head that off or slow it down by virtue of what you do or don't do, exercising, watching your diet, those sorts of things, not eating things that are bad for you. You can lower your risk of developing dementia, diabetes, strokes, heart attacks, those sorts of things. That doesn't mean that you're going to be as healthy as you were when you were 20. I always tell people it doesn't make any difference whether you're as healthy as you were when you were 20. The fact is that you're healthier than you were yesterday or last week or last month. And it's all about quality of life. Right, exactly. We don't know that much about it, but my sense of it is that once people look at things from a positive point of view, their self-confidence increases, they're more likely to take risks, they're more likely to seek new opportunities. I mean, that's what Ollie is about. Exactly. And think about what your life would be like if you spent all of your time at home alone, not being stimulated, not reading, not watching the news, not having conversations with people, not debating politics, not discussing articles that you read in the paper or what you read online. Think how boring things would be. <laughs> you know, variety is good. That's it's what the I, old, uh, if you don't use it, use you it. lose it. That is correct. Use it's it or lose it. True for us in our brains and our Absolutely. bodies and everything. Right. What about medications? Do they play a role in memory? Well, I'm not a pharmacologist. So I'll say that up front. Uh-huh. But there are medications whose side effects sometimes interfere. Antidepressives, blood pressure medication being the ones that come to mind. They interfere with your metabolism. They interfere with your concentration and your attention. They disrupt your sleep, and we know that sleep is a precursor of later cognitive decline. You can't catch up on sleep. So if you deprive yourself of sleep long enough for a long enough period of time, you will suffer for it cognitively. Which many people do now. College students, people in their 30s, 40s who are raising children, working late hours, that sort of stuff. This is reasonably recent that we're learning about it. In your classes, you mention different things that we can do to help our brain functions. Mm -hmm. You want to mention some of those? Well, with regard to memory, I advocate variety. If you want to maintain your skills, stimulate yourself in as varied a manner as you can. Do things that you don't normally do. For example, brush your teeth with your non-dominant hand. Comb your hair 
with your non-dominant hand. Wash your face with your non-dominant hand. Do something that you have never done before. So you have to get out of your comfort zone you Get a out of your bit. comfort zone. That's exactly, it's a good way of thinking about it. Routine is good, but it ultimately is bad for you. Well, you know, one of the benefits about doing this as we get older is that perhaps we wouldn't be as concerned getting out of our comfort zone because we don't have to be as concerned about what are they going to think or can I do Mm -hmm. this or am I going to be okay doing it? Am I going to look silly? Am I going to fail? Because I think one of the advantages of getting older is that you learn that those kind of worries aren't necessarily... As well, important you, as they used to be. You do get to a point where you say to yourself, and you should say to yourself, I don't care. That's right. I don't care what other people think. I'm going to do what makes me happy, so long as it doesn't hurt somebody. Exactly. Yeah. Okay? And I'm 72, and I'm getting, I'm moving in that direction. The things that I was preoccupied with and worried about, I'm no longer worried about. It's really very freeing. It is. And, you know, if you stay in your comfort zone, you'll discover that your comfort zone gets narrower and narrower and narrower. And the narrower it gets, the less likely you are to get out of it. And the more effort it's going to take, the more anxious you're going to be about what will happen to you, the more sensitive you might be about what other people might say. As you said earlier, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if I'm anxious about this, I'll avoid it. And the more I avoid it, the more anxious I get. And the more anxious I get, the more I avoid it. When I was very young, I was really anxious about going to the dentist. And the more anxious I got, the more I stayed away. The more I stayed away, the more I got anxious. I created all these scenarios about what horrible things would happen to me when I went in to get my teeth cleaned or whatever. Well, none of those things ever happened. We all do that. We all do that about some things. Sometimes we are our worst enemies. Absolutely. And the interesting opposite side of all of that is then the more we get out of our comfort zone, the better we feel about ourselves. And the better we feel about ourselves, the more apt we are to get out of our comfort zones. And your comfort zone will widen. And our moods improve. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And we have more socialization, as you mentioned with Ollie. That's a Mm -hmm. big part of it, too. Not only do you learn more interesting facts, you learn more things that you can speak about, and you also meet a larger group of people. Right. When you're interacting with people who may not have the same opinions as you do, who know something you don't, or vice versa, you engage in a conversation over lunch or after class, and you leave the class with a new mindset in terms of, oh, I didn't know that before. And rather than feel bad about it, that gives you more self-confidence to go out and look for more new information. So these are terrific ways that we can protect ourselves as we age. What about in this world we're constantly multitasking? Does that have any effect on being able to remember things? It's bad. Is it? Yes, it's bad. Who doesn't multitask? Multitasking is simply another way of saying I'm going to split my resources X number of ways, because we all have a certain degree of resources, attentional resources, information processing resources, learning resources, memory resources, whatever. If my IQ is 100, I'm never going to function like someone who has an IQ of 150. So they have more resources than I do. But the point is that you have a fixed resource base that you draw on. And when you multitask, you're just utilizing that in least efficient way. Much better to do one thing at a time 
do it well, do it to your satisfaction, and then attempt something new. If that wasn't an issue, why do you think they encourage people not to text and drive? That's right. No one is capable of splitting their attention, not sometimes, not just two ways, but maybe three or four. If you have a pot with so many marbles in it or a, a basket with so many marbles in it, you can only give away so many, and they're just not much left over. You can't have 100% in this direction and 100%, 100% in that in direction. direction. It's not going to. And then you divide it up three ways. Something is going to give. That sounds like a very, very useful little snippet of information. Right. It really does, because we all have a tendency to do that. And I think part of that, along with technology, has also brought that on. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think people are more because they've come to depend on technology to make things happen quicker. They are less tolerant of the fact that sometimes things take time to do. My father always told me, I don't care how long it takes you. I just want you to do it well. So I learned to do things well. And when I was satisfied with the fact that I'd done something well, then I moved on to something else. And there again, when we're doing it well, we're increasing our self-confidence, which also helps us in all these other areas. Are there other things that you can think about? What about alcohol, caffeine, sugar? Well, none of those things are... the thing. See, that's the issue with memory and your cognitive function in general. The things that aren't good for you, generally, are also not good for you in terms of their impact on your cognitive functioning. Drinking, staying up too late, mixing drugs, not being aware of drug interactions, not being aware of the side effects of drugs, you name it. Eating junk food. Eating junk food. Any of those bad habits. Not watching your weight. Being under constant stress, not developing good skills to help you cope with that. Multitasking is a lot more stressful than is doing one thing at a time. Which also then increases the cortisol. It's so, I mean, they're all tied in together, yeah, aren't they? they? Are Everything tied, you've they been are. talking about all relates and interrelates. Right. And once you see the big picture, it's easier for you to say, okay, I'm going to set this goal, I'm going to make this a priority, and I'm going to accomplish that, and then move on. I can even see with the multitasking, it affecting our ability to listen to people, which makes us forget more. Mm -hmm. So we think, oh, there goes my memory. I don't remember that. But if you realize that you were reading your email at the same time or whatever else you were doing. Exactly. Well, you know, as I said, memory and learning are opposite sides of the same coin. And we, we say if it doesn't get in, it can't get out. The person that didn't learn anything has nothing to forget. (laughs) I like that. So you need to ensure that what you're going to need to recall later, you learn adequately. And that's where assigning meaning to it is important. We call it encoding. So the code that you assign to that which you would like to recall is the absolute most important component of this. If it's encoded correctly, uniquely, in a meaningful way, it's going to be easier to store and therefore easier to retrieve when you need the information later. So how do you help get it in? How do you help encode it? Are there well, tricks there are that we can use? Well, there are all sorts of strategies that I talk about. I once helped a guy remember his golf score by associating the numbers, his scores, with colors or other things. Like, you made a four, that's not so poor. <laughs> uh, you made a two, no. 
Boo hoo. Boo hoo or whatever. <laughs> two is good, actually. Oh, oh, sorry. Well, I'm not a golfer, right. as you can That's tell. Right. But you know, you made an eight. Uh, that ain't so great. <laughs> Stuff like that. Learning and memory are associative. And what I mean by that is they rely on the connection that you create between something you already know and something you want to make meaningful. So, for example, how do you remember your Social Security number? You don't memorize it with nine digits. You memorize the first three, then you memorize the first two, and then you memorize the last four. Well, that's called chunking because most people's limit is about five to seven bits of information. And a bit of information is a number, a name, a location, and a series of directions, you name it, whatever it is. Most people's attention... Their capacity to hold that in is exceeded once we give them any more than three to five things to process. So once they exceed that, something has to happen to that information or else it's gone. So that's where the encoding comes in. So break more, it down and pair it? Yes. I mean, that's just one technique that you can use. You can create a visual image. You can create a rhyme. You can create an acronym. You can create a story and embed what you want to know in that story. On my alarm clock, occasionally I would forget which way the dial had to be set in order for the alarm to go off in the morning. So that's an important piece of information? Important piece of information. So I created a little acronym for me, which is right at night. The dial goes right, turn it to the right at night, and therefore it will go off in the morning. Now that's real simple. But it illustrates the point. I mean, there are you know, dozens of examples that I give in class, and I let people bring up things. You know, I'm having trouble with this. Okay, well, how would you solve that? How would you solve that? What acronym or mnemonic could you create to make that easier to learn and recall? And most people, if they give themselves a little leeway, they'll come up with something. And I stress that it has to be unique and meaningful to you. I'll ask you, what does the word KISS mean? What's that acronym mean to you? Well, most people will tell you, keep it simple, stupid. Right. Where did you learn that? Well, I learned it here or there or whatever. I said, okay, we've established that KISS is an effective way of remembering that phrase. Why is it memorable? That's what stumps people. Why is it memorable? What do we associate with kissing? Love, happiness. Love, people that we love. Yeah. Soldiers would have their girlfriend's pictures with them, kiss the picture. So it also has it, another association that that's a correct. positive association. And that's what makes it memorable. Oh, how interesting. That's what makes it memorable. Huh. Okay? Yeah. So if you can create something which is memorable, it's got to be meaningful. And if it's meaningful, you're more likely to be able to encode it, store it, and get it later. As I said, I occasionally would need my license plate. You go into your hotel and check in. They ask you for your license plate. I don't know anyone that carries their license plate number around with them. I'm sure there are probably people that do. But to save yourself the trip to the parking deck, memorizing it would be a good idea. Well, I had a car at one time which had the license plate B64MSX. And I'm thinking to myself, now how do I recall that so that I can memorize it? You know, how can I encode it so I can recall it later? Well, my wife came up with a wonderful mechanism. B64, more sex. 
<laughs> well, I have not had that license plate for easily 15 years, and I still remember it. That's my point. Yeah. Okay? Exactly. You know, and the things that people attach meaning to, like their grandchildren's names, the, the, when they got married, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's reinforced over and over and over. We rehearse it. We contemplate it. We talk about it. With regard to Alzheimer's, the rule is first in, last out. Well, what's the first thing that you have likely will have learned? Your name. And how many times you're reinforced for knowing what your name is? Thousands, thousands. Well, that at the very end of life, if you have had Alzheimer's for quite some time, eventually you'll forget who you are. But, but it reinforces the fact that it's been reinforced and strengthened, the association has been strengthened by virtue of you associating the person in the mirror with the name that you assign to that person. And you can just generalize from that to anything that's important enough for you to remember, you assign it some unique meaning. Now, I tend to have difficulty with people's names. And I'm thinking after hearing all that you have been saying about this, I'm also telling myself that I have difficulty with names. So I've really set myself up. But if I'm in a group of people and I'm learning several names, to use these sort of mnemonic devices to remember their names or associations, but I need to make them meaningful with each association, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So right. each name that I would come up with some sort of a device to remember, I should make it something that will truly jog my memory then. Right. When you see that person, you first see the, if you will, the stimulus, the thing that's already exists, and then that quickly elicits the name that you want to pair with that stimulus. So like we named our cat Bob. And why do you think we named our cat Bob? Bobcat. Bobcat. There you go. <laughs> I named my cat Tom. But, and you know, people would laugh I, uh, that. I'll, I'll give you an example of that with regard to names. That is not my strength either. And whenever I find myself in a situation where it's important that I remember someone's name, I always say to myself, give yourself a little time. Give yourself some time to create some sort of an association that is going to make it easier for you to remember this person's name the next time you see them. I think people rush to judgment too quickly because they're anxious about it. Yes. A little anxiety is fine. Too much anxiety interferes. Absolutely. But I also tell people, you don't have to memorize everything. Sometimes it's better just to write it down. There's nothing wrong with that. I wrote my appointment down today to see you, 2 o'clock Friday. Now, I looked at it a fair number of times, but I didn't make an effort to memorize it because I knew that I had something to do on Friday. And I have a routine that I go through every morning. I look at my calendar and I find out what I need to do and that's that. It's In part, it's about getting organized and deciding what's important to remember and what isn't. Let me ask you this question, which is a little bit different side of what we've been talking about. Does aging provide any benefits to our cognitive abilities? Yes. Things that are what I'll call experiential, which are knowledge-based, which involve the use of your wisdom, judgment, those things do not decline. Wonderful news. Right. In fact, maybe we get better at it. Right. As things that involve speed and involve what we call effortful processing tend to decline. And memory would fall into that. But as I said, there are lots of ways of compensating 
for what would otherwise be a decline. This has been wonderful. I mean, really, very wonderful. There are so many things that you have said today that I take away that I feel more confident in being able to remember more and be less anxious about my abilities to remember, which I do become anxious about because I've had people around me in my environment who have memory difficulties. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me anxious. And I find this very positive and very helpful. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you think might be interesting to share? Well, I think you've hit on the anxiety thing. I think that's a very, very important thing. Your, Your whole attitude toward life toward growing older, having self-confidence, not allowing yourself to be put off by failure. You know, that's resilience in my book. In addition to being able to learn to develop new skills, that's the sort of two-pronged perspective that I take. And that includes developing techniques to deal with anxiety, relaxation, self-talk, avoiding stress, developing skills which allow you to keep things in perspective, having someone to rely on. All those things are very important in terms of getting you to a point where a challenge or even a failure is not something that puts you off. And I do know people that they've already internalized this sense of, I can't do this. That's right. And, I and never so they can't so because they don't try? try. Why try? It's as much about your attitude toward things, you know, living in the present, being mindful, looking for the good rather than the bad. We've done a really good job of emphasizing the bad when it comes to aging. When you think about all the things that you hear about with regard to aging, almost all of them are negative in one way or the other. That's right. Nursing homes, widowhood, poor health, rigidity assisted living, you name it. I mean, those all have a negative quality to them that people do internalize long before they get old. It's not as if you wake up one morning and you're old, but it almost, it may appear that way because you've not done the work that you need to do to maintain your skills, create a world for yourself, which is stimulating, supportive, positive, realistic, you have to be realistic, full of relationships. If you don't have a relationship, find one. There are many, many people out there. There are a lot of people out there, and there are a lot of opportunities to meet people in groups. You you can either overlook them and avoid them, or you can take them on. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. You know, learning new skills is very important. I try to practice what I preach. You know, I'm still running, I play the guitar, I'm still teaching, I'm still writing, I try to help other people when I can. Oh, those are all good things, in they my are. opinion. They are indeed. And, and there's no reason that, that we, or anything, we can all go out and do some variety of that absolutely. in our own way. But that adds to your... Uh, your sense of well-being and your yes, reservoir. Your, your scope, life space increases when you do that. Right. It doesn't decrease. It increases. Every person I meet when I deliver meals is an opportunity for me to talk to them, to learn a little bit about them, whatever it may be. I delivered a meal to one over here off of Bonnie Bray, and I discovered that her son 
was the guy that did the termite work in our house when we lived here. <laughs> and his name was Hector, and he was a wonderful guy. We yeah. hadn't seen him for what a while. What a connection. And how about that? There's his mama. That's right. <laughs> so she remembers me. I obviously remember her, you know, house Hector, whatever, and all that sort of thing. But you have to look for these opportunities. You know, your life space, uh, what's the term we were using before? You dig yourself a hole, and it becomes increasingly difficult. Yeah, that's self-fulfilling that prophecy. Exactly. We need to be our own best friends. Absolutely. We absolutely you know, need to support yourself. ourselves. I mean, so what if you forgot where your purse is? That's right. So what? You'll find it. Yeah. You know, And if you sit, don't, there's other purses. <laughs> that's right. You know, you sit down, and you calm down. Yeah. Because most of us, when we get anxious about something, our behavior gets more erratic. Absolutely. I mean, if you've ever gotten lost on a trip, that's a good example. Right. Or you've ever lost something and it's very important to you to find it. Well, then you start scurrying around yeah. and you lose all connection. And most of the times I'm scurrying around looking in crazy places where it couldn't possibly be because it is right where I looked the first time and I didn't right. see it there. Right. Yeah. yeah. What happens to me, I'm my own worst enemy from time to time. I get distracted and I'll lay something down in a place that it's not supposed to be. Yes. And then it takes me that much longer to find And there's it. no fault in that. No, there isn't. Yeah. But I could have avoided that. By putting By putting it back in the same place, giving myself a little bit of a break, saying, okay, now I don't want to lose this, so where is it going to need to go? Well, thank you so very much. I've really enjoyed this. I can't wait to hear what else you have to say in your other classes, and I appreciate it very much. Well, thank thank you. you very much. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Bert Hayslip, Jr. Thanks for listening. <laughs>